Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me for a special episode of The Debrief. Today it's just gonna be me. And uh, what I wanna do today is I wanna dive deeply uh, into some of the Hebrew words in regards to homosexuality, specifically homosexual intercourse. So I want to differentiate between the feelings of a person who identifies as gay, a person who identifies as homosexual, and the actual words that are talked about that we're going to discuss today. Because I'm a heterosexual male, uh, that's who I am. I am not currently, presently, at least as I know, sinning as a heterosexual male. I'm just not. But with my thoughts, Jesus says, with my eyes, with my hands, there are things that I can do. Jesus says, looking with a woman, looking at a woman with lust, uh, pursuing her with lust, a woman that's not my wife or that is specifically someone else's wife. Uh, and there are actions that I can do as a heterosexual male that are sin. And so I really want to differentiate that because I think in the past, what we've done is we've, when I say we, I mean the historical churches, we've shamed people for feelings maybe that they didn't ask for, that they didn't want, that they don't understand. And what, what I would say about all of this in terms of sexuality is sexuality is thrust upon all of us. Whether you're gay or straight, all of a sudden you get these feelings, you don't want them, you don't like them, you don't understand them, and it's hard for all of us to figure this out. And I'm gonna talk more about this in a couple weeks. Um, so when I talk about this in the... Um, in the sermon, be surprised and act like you never heard of it. But most people don't realize what the story of Peter Pan really is. And uh, like, I love Walt Disney, Disneyland, but Walt Disney, what he does is he literally destroys old stories that speak real truths. And what Walt Disney does for us is he softens them and he changes them so that they're more palatable to young audiences, specifically children. But the problem is many of these stories are written for adults um, to really understand about the struggles in so many of these stories. And so let me talk specifically about Peter Pan. So many of you have never thought about why his last name is Pan. Pan is the Greek god of fertility. We would say the Greek god of, of puberty, right? He's coming for you. He's very, very scary. When you, If you just Google a picture of the god of Pan, he's terrifying. So he's kind of like half goat, half human being, uh, and, and he hunts you and he's scary. And that's why in English, from the Greek word Pan, that's in reference to the god Pan, we get the word panic. That's where it comes from because it's scary. And puberty is scary. It's very, very frightening. Sexuality coming at you is frightening. And here's why your parents don't talk to you about it because it's terrifying. It's scary and it's hard for dads to look at their little cute girls and talk about sex and moms to, to look at their little boys that are gonna love them forever. Moms, they're not. They're gonna fall in love with someone else. And so that's very, very scary. So Peter Pan is running from puberty. He wants to be a boy forever. Listen to me, girls. Some of you have never thought about it. It's interesting. He wants to run from manhood, and yet he wants to visit a girl's bedroom by night. He flies into her bedroom by night. Because even if boys don't turn into men, they will still develop masculine or male desires. And oftentimes, they will want to fly into your bedroom at night and take you away to Never Never Land. But the problem is, ladies, when you have sex with a man, you have to grow up because things change very rapidly for you uh, through intercourse. So Peter Pan runs to Never Never Land, and who is he pursued by? Captain Hook, right? Your, your, your worst uncle, your, your just grouchy grandpa. You know, he's mean, he's nasty, he's got a hook. He's scary and he's gonna hook you into adulthood. And what's chasing Captain Hook? An alligator that swallowed a what? Clock. It's Father Time. It kills us all. It kills us all and he's coming for you and there's nothing you can do to outrun it. And so these are the stories and so much of what you know, we're gonna be talking about as we look at sexuality, specifically as a modern culture, not just heterosexuality or homosexuality, but sexuality in general, many of us don't wanna grow up. Um, and this is why for so many 
gay guys, it's hard for them to commit to a monogamous lifelong relationship. I don't care what you watch on Modern Family. That is a picture of Hollywood's impersonation of gay relationships, but the most of them struggle deeply to remain in monogamous relationships. And why is that, guys? The Bible says that for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ladies, if you're single, you don't need a man. Guys, the Bible says if you're single, part of your growing up is leaving mom and dad, leaving boyhood, and clinging to a woman, and listen to me, and becoming something else. The one flesh. You're changing who you are as male and female, and you're growing up together. And there's something about a woman, when we engage in intercourse with a woman in the context of marriage, that forces us to grow up. Women help men mature. Married men make more money. Like we talk a lot about the gender wage gap between women and men. Look at the gender, or excuse me, look at the pay gaps between married men and single men. Do you know why that is? Because a single man wants to play at home, play video games, doesn't really care. A married woman is saying, we got bills to pay, we got children to feed, you need to get a promotion, you need to invest in yourself, you need to grow up, Peter Pan. So just understand that, that there's something in the sexual design that God knows that as men, without a woman, we'll play. And we'll play forever, as long as we can, but we still have those sexual desires. And your desires may be to visit the bedroom of a, of a young girl, or it may be to, to visit you know, a young man specifically. Um, and I don't say that in, in terms of pedophilia at all, but Peter Pan is still a prepubescent boy, right on the verge, right? 11 or 12 of changing and entering into puberty. So let's talk about today. One of the questions I got from you guys that was great. Um, is there a reason you research the etymology of pornography, but not homosexuality? Yes, there's a reason. And here's why. Pornos, or uh, pornea, is the most important word for the Christian. Because what it says is you're going to have sexual desires that you are not to fulfill. You're going to have desires, you're going to have drives, you're going to have wants, you're going to have curiosities that as a Christian, you are not free to practice sex however you want. And what I would say to you is any religion that gives you total sexual freedom is not a religion. It just isn't. It's not a religion, it's permission. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for an outside source to tell you, do whatever you want. So Christianity speaks specifically to this. And throughout the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, we are told that there are some things that your friends will do, other ethnic groups will do, other communities will do, other religions will do, and these are not for you. You are not to practice your sexual life this way. And so the reason I started with pornos is, A, to not pick on our homosexual gay community because I think that that's what happens too often. And oftentimes, I think in the heterosexual community, we think we're, we're not as bad or that bad. And the truth is, you, according to Paul's gospel in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if you continue to engage in pornos uh, or the practice of, and we're gonna talk about this word, ar arsenokoitas, uh, if you engage in either of these, word, the, these behaviors, these acts, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And a lot of heterosexuals have just given themselves permission. And so what's happened in the church? First, we softened our stance on divorce. That's the first compromise that we made. And look what it does to families. Look what it does to children. So uh, I'm not saying you have to stay in an abusive, terrible, you know, life-threatening situation. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus gives us a small window where we can have divorce. And we have to wrestle with what that word means uh, when he gives us that word in Matthew chapter 19. He does not give us the same permission with premarital sex or homosexual sex. We have no scriptures that allow for that. 
and we'll talk about that. So pornos is anything outside of a monogamous, loving relationship between a man and a woman. And the reason I use that word is because we still use that word in English, porn. Like if you go to Pornhub, that's, a, that's, a, that's an English and a Greek word. Okay, what is it? It's a hub. It, it's a, a collection point for all that is off limits to the Christian. Gay sex, straight sex, multi-partner sex. I mean, I haven't been on it, so I don't, I don't know all of the things that you can find on there, but the internet has made every desire, every curiosity, every depravity accessible for the person who engages in pornos. Now, some of us are engaging in a little bit, and some of us have completely gone off the cliff and we're engaging in a lot. And so we need to remember that the Greek word for sin doesn't mean evil. The Greek word for sin means missing the mark. Some of you are barely missing it. Some of you are missing it a lot. Some of you are shooting at another target altogether. Some of you are just shooting other people, right? So there are degrees of sin, and a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with that, but that's what the Bible speaks to. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul gives a list of sins that if we continue to engage in these, and we have to remember that he's talking to the church, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to people who, who have chosen to follow Christ. And he's saying, don't be confused, don't be fooled. If you continue in this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so then what we do is we jump into conversations about one saved, all we saved, Calvinism or Arminism, and he's talking about behavior. What he's saying is don't fool yourself. Look, none of us know, like, I don't know whether you're saved or you're saved or you're saved or you're saved. Like that's between you and Christ and you know that. What I can know is I can look at your behavior. I can look at how you act. And if those are in contradiction to the word of God, we can say, okay, I'm pretty sure that you're not headed for the kingdom of God. And we need to know that as the church because there are people in our church, you know, right? That continue to, like if you're just like an open racist, like I, I hate people of different ethnicities, that's problematic for love one another, preach the gospel into all nations. There is neither you know, uh, Greek nor Gentile nor slave or free, right? We're, we're all together in the body of Christ. That's, that's problematic. And I would say you have to leave. You cannot be a part of our community. And so just as there are boundaries for, you know, um, it doesn't mean that people can't grow in their appreciation of other ethnicities, right? Some of us were raised wrong. And so we have to learn to be re-raised right. But if someone is openly racist or openly problematic, we have to, we have to move them out. And the same way is with sexual deviant behavior. So let's take a look at our text, uh, Romans 1, 26 through 27. And I'm reading, uh, I believe this is out of the ESV. It could be the NASB, so they will put it below. Uh, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And likewise, men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion. And this is the key understanding for one another. And I'll talk about why that's important. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here's the Apostle Paul's understanding. It's the same understanding that Jesus affirms in all of the Gospels. In the beginning, God created the male and female. Now, the English text will translate this man and woman. And that's really problematic because what the text really says is male and female. And that's important because the Apostle Paul, in his argument for why Christians should only engage in monogamous, committed uh, sex with, within marriage is because of how God designed us, right? God didn't design Adam and another guy. God didn't design Adam and multiple women. God designed them male and female, and he put them together as Adam and Eve. So marriage is God's idea. And so many of you say, well, 
you know, was there a priest present? Well, we don't have a third person present for the original marriage. God is operating as God, Adam is operating as Adam, and Eve is operating as Eve. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about Adam and Eve. I believe that they were priests and they were in the garden. When you look at the Greek or the Hebrew word to work and keep, those are the same Hebrew words that later Moses will use to describe the work that priests do in the tabernacle. To work and to keep, same word. And words are important. They're very, very important. We need to understand that. So, and that's part of the reason why Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because it's, it's, it's the holiest of holies. It's the tabernacle of God. They don't have to leave earth. They just have to leave the promised land, the garden of Eden, which is interesting because when Jesus is dying on the cross and the thief turns to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The word is garden. You'll be, you're gonna be with me in the place that I've created you. You see, through Jesus, we get to go back into the garden. But it's a new garden, it's better. So let's take a look at this. Uh, Romans 1, 26 and 27 is the most challenging text for uh, the LGBTQ community who says we're Christian and God affirms this and blesses us. And this is why. The words are, and men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So here's one of the questions that I got this week. I've heard that the Bible is only against abusive sex, which of course it is. And I wanna talk about that in a second. If I forget that, will you remind me? Abusive sex, I want you, I want you to ask me about that. The verses calling about out, out homosexuality uh, are about sex during idol, idol worship in the Old Testament, gay pedophilia and in the New Testament. Can you ex please explain this interpretation versus the traditional interpretation of these texts? What I would say uh, to the wonderful person that wrote this question is, all of these arguments that you have presented are new arguments. There's something in the last 50 years. And so the text hasn't changed, uh, culture has changed, our culture has changed. So here's what's interesting is we're returning to a culture like the Apostle Paul lived in. Homosexuality was rampant and very, very normal. And there were multiple ways to engage in that as a male during the, the life and time of Jesus Christ. Now, it was not practiced outwardly in the Jewish communities of Jesus. Like, it was a real quick way to die. Like, if you openly practice homosexuality within the context of conservative Judaism at the time of age of Jesus Christ, you, you would not have lived long. So if you were a young... Jewish male that wanted to engage in uh, gay sex, you'd have to go to a Greek or Roman town. You, you have to leave mom and dad, you have to go. It's why in the story of the prodigal son, when he asks for his inheritance, he leaves. Because he can't live his life as a sinner with dad. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. He's saying, I'm my own man now, let's pretend you're dead, dad, I'm gonna go. And he wastes it on prostitutes and, and, and un unhealthy sexual living. That's what he does. So. We need to understand that during Jesus' age and time, and one of the arguments is, well, why doesn't Jesus ever speak to homosexuality? Jesus rebukes his audience, and he rebukes them, their conservative Jewish religious practitioners, where they're wrong. He never confronts them where they're right. That's why he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He's saying I, I, another way. You know, don't just walk one mile when the Roman soldier asks you, walk two. Who is the good Samaritan? He's correcting their understanding of how to love our neighbor. And what's interesting is this, the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The first command that Jesus gives comes from Deuteronomy chapter six. The second command comes from the book that we all wanna throw away, Leviticus 19. 
The two texts that speak to homosexuality in Leviticus are Leviticus 18, chapter 18, and Leviticus chapter 20. Why would love your neighbor as yourself be right in the middle of a bunch of verses about sex? It's about how we treat each other. And one of the ways that God cares about how we treat each other is in relation to one another sexually. Okay, so in the church, you guys are not my wife. I relate to you as a sister. The Bible speaks specifically about not having sex with your sister. Don't do that, okay? Or my brother. I don't relate to you uh, as in a sexual way at all. You're a man. I relate to you as my brother in Christ. And that's the way that we're to live and act with each other because we're a part of the family of God. And so that's how we act and that's how we behave. Yeah, good, thank you. Abusive relationships. So if you're, if you're a young person in your college day, you're gonna hear a lot about the word consent, sexual consent. Guess who invents that idea? The Apostle Paul, right? So your body is not your own, it's your wife's. And why would, why would the Apostle Paul tell a husband that he has to have sex with his wife? Because Greek men didn't sleep with their wives. They, they slept with their sex slaves. They slept with prostitutes. A woman was for child rearing and, and child management. She's property, right? You get her and she has no rights. She has no voice. She has no opinions. She, she is just there for the purpose of raising your children. Sexual eroticism, passion, that's everywhere else. Paul says, no, no, no. The two shall become one flesh. Your body's not your own. You have to please her. And you read the text. He starts with the man first. And then he speaks to the woman. And you as well. Like God has made this for each other. And so then he says, and the only reason not to engage in sex as a married couple is with mutual consent. It's the first place where this idea comes up from. Because women had, who cares what they think 2,000 years ago? Paul says God cares. Mutual consent. She matters. She matters to you. She matters to me. She matters to God. And that's where this idea comes up from. And so abusive sex is always wrong. And it can happen in the context of a heterosexual monogamous relationship. I don't get to demand sex with my wife. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not demand its own way. So I have to meet her needs. She meets my needs. We come together mutually consenting. Now, you'd think that people would know that, but young men who drink alcohol in college seem to not know. So there's a lot of things in scriptures that we think you just should know that people just don't know. And they need to be taught because they haven't been taught. And so we say, well, that's not how I was raised. That's not how I feel. God, God wants you to learn how he feels. And God wants you to learn how he wants you to be raised. So, so I've heard the verses calling out homosexuality are only about idol worship in the Old Testament and gay pedophilia. Oftentimes, uh, in Greek culture, it was very, very common for men to engage with sex with younger men. And the reason for that, it's interesting, and we'll get into this, is that it was only seen as demeaning in Greek culture for the man who played the role of the woman. It was not seen as demeaning for the man who played, played the role of man. So not, sorry to be gross. So, so the act of penetration as a man was seen as de, uh, emasculating. You were playing the role of a woman. So in Greek culture, it was okay as long as you played the role of a man. The Apostle Paul is gonna to speak to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse nine. Many of it was prostitution. Um, you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of transgenderism, guys wanting to look more like women, you know, transition women, they identify women. Well, that's always been around. And so in Corinth, it's everywhere. So if you, if you wanna imagine what Corinth was like, it's like Las Vegas and 1970, San Francisco had a baby. It's a crazy gambling, anything goes town, 
you just kind of do whatever you want. I mean, it was a crazy place. And Paul plants a church there, and he stays there longer than anybody else. Why? They had a lot of problems. He's got a guy in the church that's having sex with his dad's wife. And people think it's okay. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Kick him out. Kick him out. And you're like, well, who am I to judge? Paul says, you guys better judge, or I'm going to come and judge you. So there are some things that are so egregious that we have to deal with. So let's talk about what this, what this word specifically means. And so I want to give you really just five texts to think about in regards to homosexuality. I don't want to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah because gang rape is gang rape. Uh, I don't want to talk about Lot getting drunk, or excuse me, Noah getting drunk and his son. Um, and there's a lot of other passages that we could talk about that talk about uh, gay male prostitution. What I want to talk about is really the five texts that speak specifically to homosexuality in the Bible. And there's only five. So let's write them down. So the first one is Leviticus 18, 13. Leviticus 20. Did I just write those backwards? Yes, I did. I have, I have uh, dyslexia. It happens all the time. Leviticus 13. 13. 1823. Do you see why I had a problem? Okay. Then we have Romans 1, 26. R really, it's, it's half of Romans 1, but we'll say, and 27. Then we have 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And we have 1 Timothy 1, 10. And let me tell you why these passages are important. This is one of the passages where, where the Apostle Paul, in this list in 1 Timothy 1.10, specifically condemns slavery. Slave traders. If you, if you translate it literally, it's man-stealers. Man-stealers. Man-stealers will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is against all unrighteousness. So in the ancient world, you could sell yourself into slavery to make some money, but you could buy yourself out of slavery. Like if you were stolen, you, you were property from the very beginning. That looked much more like American slavery, where you had no rights forever. And not only were you owned, but your children were owned. The Apostle Paul would have thought that was abhorrent. It's ridiculous. So even slaves in the Old Testament, right, had the year of Jubilee. You're set free. You can, you can buy your own freedom. You have value. The Bible says, remember that you were slaves. Okay, that's why uh, in the South, um, black pastors had a slave Bible. Did you know that? It's, it's not the same Bible we had. Why, why might... Why might they not want them to have that because there are some passages where the Apostle Paul says, if you can get your freedom, get it. He tells um, Philemon, read the whole book of Philemon, that your slave that has ran away who can be punished by death according to Roman law, he's not your slave, he's your brother, and you need to welcome back as such because he's a Christian. Unheard of. And then young Timothy, he says, look, man, slave traders have no place in the kingdom of God. It's where we get the wonderful song, Amazing Grace. He's a slave trader. And he almost dies off the coast of Ireland. And he says, God, if you get me out of this, I will never sell a human being again. Why would he say that? He knows it's wrong. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Amazing song. The Bible says he's one of the worst, one of the worst people to kidnap and to steal and to take someone else. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, we can expand on that. But that's why these verses are important. So here's what I want you to see. Here, 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 and here. When the Apostle Paul 
talks about, I mean, he didn't write these, but we have these translated into Greek uh, by the second century. The Hebrew is translated into the Greek because Jews no longer spoke Hebrew. Many of them spoke Aramaic, but most spoke Greek. Just like um, if you're Hispanic, I always, you know, my Mexican friends, I always ask them, I don't know, I'm pointing to you, uh, can you speak Spanish? A lot of them, if they're second and third generation, the answer is no. You know, and uh, the same thing was true of Jews. Jews were uh, conquered by the Greeks. Alexander the Great came in and conquered them, and many of them, in order to function, to, to, to um, rise, to, you know, economically um, be a part of the community and, and pay for your bills, you had to learn Greek. Um, Jesus probably knew Greek, probably spoke Greek. So it's translated so that the people can read it into their own language that they understand. And we actually see that in, um, in the book of 2 Kings, uh, King Josiah, they find the scriptures and they have to find someone that can read it. No one can read Hebrew. They're Hebrews. Nobody can read it anymore because they've transitioned to understanding another language of the day. So language changes. Even like if you read King James, like sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't understand that. Well, that's you know, translated in 1611. Language has changed. So, so what you need to know about these verses is when they speak of homosexuality, they, they typically don't use the word man. They use the word male. Now, why is that important? Because when a, little, when a little baby boy is born, we say it's a boy. Two things, it's not an it, and it's not a boy, it's a baby. On your birth certificate, what do they mark when you're born? I mean, it, it may change now, but traditionally there's two boxes. Do you know what it is? Male and female. And why is that? Because the baby, when he's a baby, he's a male. Then he becomes a toddler, he's a male. Then he becomes a little boy, he's a male. Then he becomes prepubescent, adolescent, young man, middle-aged man, old man, you're a male all the way through. And so when scripture talks about homosexual acts, it talks about it male on male. Why is that important? Because much of the LGBT community's argument is it means boy, a man can't have sex with a boy, a man can't have sex with a young man. And the problem with that is the text uses the word male. Male. So we're gonna take a look at this. So write these scriptures down. So, you know, we're in Romans 1.26, but it's addressed in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1.10. And here's why it's important if you're, if you're gay and you're struggling. Um, you know, this gives us a consistent viewpoint of the Apostle Paul. So we have early thinking, kind of middle thinking, and this is written later in his life. So what this shows us is as the Apostle Paul aged, he didn't change his view on homosexual intercourse. It remained consistent. And here's why, because Paul's a Jew and he understands that there are things, pornea, that are off limits. And the reason we need these scriptures is because if I just say you can't, if you just, you just can't commit sexual immorality, you all need to know what that is. We learn that from the scriptures. So take, let's take a look at these. So let me give you the Greek word for homosexuality according to what the apostle Paul says. So here's, here's the Greek word in English. Um, and, and what it means is arson. It's two words, coitus. Arson means male, sometimes translated man. Okay, it's never translated boy. It's never translated uh, young man. It, what it means is gender designation. Th that's the best way. Uh, and and what, what it means is, and coitus 
In Latin, coitus means sex, but in Greek, coitus means bed. Okay? And so what it really means, I think, in the most basic translation is, is, a, is a male who beds males, a man who goes to bed with men. So we see this in the Hebrew text. It says, it says, a man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. And so in Hebrew, to lie is, you know, is a word describing sex. Like with my wife, I might say, hey, do you want to go to bed? And that might mean sleep. That might mean sex. And so the same thing is true of both. So we see this in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. The Bible says you must honor the marriage bed. What does he mean? You have to honor your sexuality. Those who commit adultery and those who commit pornea will be judged. So even as heterosexuals, we must honor the marriage coitus. It's really, really important. Arson coitus. And so arson means male. Coitus means bed. And that's why traditionally it has been translated men who sleep with men. Now, one of the arguments is, well, why does the word homosexual appear in 1940? Well, this is my research. Somebody can correct me on this. But as best I can tell, the word homosexual is invented by an Austrian-born Hungarian psychologist who's tried, trying to understand men who sleep with men. And so he coins the phrase homosexual, and it was coined or invented in the late 19th century. So, for example, we won't see the word homosexual appear in the ASV because it was translated in 1901. There's not enough time. So people say, well, it doesn't show up until the 1940s. Well, it takes time. People didn't have the internet. They can't discuss these things. And, and as hard as it may be for some of you to believe whose sexuality is every part of your life, the first time I heard the word gay, the first time I heard the word homosexual, I was in sixth grade. I had never heard it before. I had an uncle who was gay. I didn't know he was gay. Nobody talked about it. It was never discussed. Okay? Never discussed. Even when he was dying of AIDS, he was just sick. So there was a famous actor by the name of Rock Hudson. He died, he, he died of AIDS. I didn't know what AIDS were. I, I didn't know what gay was. I had no idea. Some of you, you, you live in the world today, and you can't imagine living in a world where that wasn't discussed. It was never brought up, even in the context of family, even when my family member was dying. We just didn't discuss it. Now, right, we discuss everything. We got, we got 12-year-olds saying, what are you, cis, bi, gay, trans? I mean, that is, the world has completely changed in just really the last 10 years. So... The word homosexual doesn't appear. And so, so what the LGBTQ, the LGBTQ community says is homosexual is added, and that's not what it really means. Well, the word homosexual was invented and then later added. And I still don't think it's the best word to translate arson coitus. Arson coitus should be translated men who have sex with men. Or better, males who have sex with males. That is off limits. And that's what it means. And the Romans passage is the only passage in Scripture that speaks of lesbianism. It's the, only, it's, the only ver it's the only verse that we have. And as best I can tell, in Jewish culture, you know, women were, were, were often objectified and seen as second-class citizens, and so they had very few rights, very few freedoms. And so if, if there was lesbian sex happening, it was unseen, unheard of, or it, they felt it didn't need to be addressed. And much of the homosexual, excuse me, much of the prostitution that you see in the Old Testament is actually male prostitutes. And that has recently been brought to light because you can tell if a prostitute's a male or a female based upon its ending in Hebrew. And so sure enough, most of them end with, with um, im. There's a restaurant in Riverside called Burger Im. It's a Jewish restaurant. It means burgers, plural. Burgers is masculine in Hebrew. Im is burgers, burger Im. So that's how you know. So, so we see this arson coitus. Now, 
where does the LGBT community um, have a point? The point is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and we'll get to that. And I do have this word um, in Greek. And so the challenging word is not this. This means male who sleeps with male. The question and the problem is this word, which is malakos. Or in Greek, it's malakoi. And so the question is, what is this word? Because the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9, and in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 1.10, he uses this word. But in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, chapter 9, he says this word. So, men who sleep with men will not inherit the kingdom of God, and this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Malakos, what does it mean? Jesus uses the word a couple times in the book of Matthew. He says, what did you come to see when you saw John? What did you come to see when you saw me? And he says, did you expect to see someone dressed in soft clothing? It can be translated soft or fine, rich people, very, very rich people. He says, is that what, is that what you thought you were going to come to see? So it can be descriptive of clothing, very, very soft, king-like. But it also can be translated soft in terms of masculinity. In English today, we would use the word effeminate. So the question is, why does the Apostle Paul write these two words together? And so what the gay community says is that a Amalekos is uh, a young boy kept as a sex slave or a, what we would call a, a, relation, a pedophile's relationship with a young man. So that's what they say this is. And so here's the problem that I have with that interpretation. So is the Apostle Paul saying that both the committer of the crime and the victim of the crime will not inherit the kingdom of God? I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, would we say that to somebody who's been sexually abused? God's going to hold you accountable for that if you don't stop that. If you're the one where the crime's being committed against, you, you have no control. You're, you're not in the position of power. So, so the problem with this text is, is that we have the Apostle Paul condemning a victim, and I, I don't think that's what he means. What I think he means is to Greek culture where just this person was the sinner. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The one who plays the role of the man and the one who rolls, plays the role of the woman is a sinner and will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what I think he's saying. Now, to be fair, it can be translated soft. It, can, it is a euphemism for um, a young man who uh, is used um, by other men. It, it is. Um, but we have to be careful that we don't just hone it into one meaning or the other. I think it's a broad meaning that means all men who play the role of the woman and are penetrated by the other man. And if you're watching and your children are present, I'm sorry. But that's what it means. And here's one of the problems with translations. We soften the word of God all the time. We, the Puritans, God bless them, thank you for them. They, they, they created a view of God that just is, is horrendous. And that's why you have you know, people who think sex is evil, even in the context of marriage. Like, you should just do it to have kids. Well, you know, God created it not just for procreation, but for pleasure and connection with one another. It's a, it's a way as a husband and wife come together literally, physically, as one. It's an important thing, but it needs to be consensual. It needs to be something that's done when there's emotional uh, and spiritual and physical connection, right? It, it's, it should be the outgrowth of intimacy. It doesn't create intimacy. It doesn't manufacture intimacy, um, but it's something that we should, we should do in the context of marriage. And so that's what I think this word means, and there's going to be people that disagree, but, you know, I can't call the Apostle Paul up on the phone and say, hey, you know, what did you mean by this? And so we have to do the best that we can. Um, and, and, and there's a consistent um, theme in Scripture. So I shared this with you in my, in my sermon last week. But this is written by um, 
the LGBTQ community of churches that are open and affirming. And here's what they said. Scholar Daniel Kirk has pointed out, Christians today would do well by the tradition of the apostles and our current witnesses in the world to recognize that theological abstractions aside, what that means is I disagree with them, but they want to push me aside. <laughs> Don't listen to Matt Brown. God has clearly embraced LGBTQ people into full communion and is now, it is now the church's responsibility to simply honor that reality and rejoice. Luke 15. Well, what happens in Luke 15? He says, I've sinned against my father. I've sinned against God. I would rather be a slave and go back to my father's house because slaves in my father's house are treated better than me as a free man. And what I would say to the LGBT community is you can come home just like I did, but you have to repent of your sins and say, I've sinned against my father. I've sinned against who God's designed me and what he's created me to be. That young man wasted his money on prostitutes. He didn't just get to come home. He had to come home because he repented. The father was waiting, but he had to repent. The same thing is true in the woman caught in the act of adultery. Everybody loves John 8. Who am I to judge? Nobody throws stones. The word there in the Greek means, has, has no one killed you, condemned? Neither do I kill you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Okay? We think of judgment. Oh, they're going to be cruel. No, they had stones in their hands. They were going to kill her. But he told her, now leave your life of sin. Leave it. So that's Jesus saying, you don't just get to do whatever you want to do. You have to repent. You have to stop. You have to stop doing that and engaging in that. So they quoted uh, scholar Daniel Kirk. Let me read to you. I read this to you, and hopefully we'll put it right here in front of you so you can see it. This is, this is the scholar Daniel Kirk that they quote who says we should just let LGBTQ people in. No repentance is necessary. God is doing a new thing. Here's what he says. And, and just to be fair, I'll talk about it in a minute, why he says we should let him in. He says, as a New Testament professor, the greatest struggle I've had is I've wanted, that's key, he's wanted to be more affirming to my LGBTQ sisters. And that's the problem. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what I want. Well, the question we have to ask is what does God want? And we, ha we have to look at the word, the word of God. We can wrestle with it. We can argue it. What we can't do is put theological abstractions aside and say they just, they just don't matter. We have to actually look at what the text says. And here's what I'd say. Why did Southern Christians allow slavery? Why did they think it was okay? It's not because of what the Word of God says. It's because of what Southern culture said. That's the problem. Culture is always the problem. It's not Scripture. It's culture. And so here's why I think churches are changing their point of view. In the same way that a church, a pastor would lose his job if he stood up and said the way we're treating black people is wrong and unethical, he'd be gone. The same way today, pastors that are standing up in L.A., San Francisco, and they're saying what I'm saying, they're gone. You guys only tolerate so much from me. I have to be very, very careful in how hard I push you. So it's really, really hard. It's really, really difficult. I have to be very, very careful when I lay the hammer down. Because, and that's just our culture. And so today, today, more and more churches, they don't want to be bad. Like homophobic and racist, interchangeable words in our culture in terms of condemnation. You don't, you don't want to be called either of those. And if you're gay, I'm not homophobic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying in our culture, I've been labeled that. I got called a sadist last week. A sadist is a person who inflicts harm on someone else sexually. Right? And this is from the culture that produced shades of gray. It's not so gray. And that's why consent isn't always helpful because some couples consent to violence 
within sex. It's not, it's not okay. Even if your spouse wants it. Because you and I don't get to determine what's healthy. One of the famous uh, rock stars when I started Talents Church was Marilyn Manson. And here's the thing is, he tried to pretend he could dress evil, but he wasn't evil. And what we found out from his girlfriends and past relationships, he really is evil. And what he's saying is, listen, what he's saying is he believed his partners were consenting to him whipping them and beating them. And what they're saying now, listen to me, women, is they weren't in a right thinking at the time. You see, here's why we need to trust God. God is always in a position of right thinking when it comes to sex. Our desires for one another to please, to be loved, to be felt and cared for can override our sense of what's right and wrong. And these women, after they've gotten away and been able to reflect, what they're saying is, oh my gosh, that, that was wrong. But in the moment, they felt powerless because one of his girlfriends, I was listening, she said, I wanted him to love me. And so she was willing to be violated, physically beaten in the name of love. Gross. Terrible, awful, evil. That's why you and I don't get to consent because even consent, if it's abuse, if it's immoral, we have to ask, what does God consent to? What does he consent to? Violence is wrong. Treating someone else like that is wrong. Like, what does the Bible say about love? That's why we need this. So he says, as a New Testament professor, the greatest struggle I've had is I've wanted to be more affirming. I know many of you have gay friends. You want to, you want to be affirming. And here's what I, I have gay people in my life all the time. Gay people that love Jesus and go to sandals. Gay people that believe they love Jesus and go somewhere else. I have people that hate God, don't care about Jesus. Like, I got a lot of gay people in my life. I don't run around. You know what the Bible says. That's not what I do. I love them. I'm kind to them. If they want a discussion, like one of my good friends, uh, he was a pastor at this church. He left Sandals Church. He's married to a man. He said, do you think I'm going to hell? I said, it doesn't matter what I think. I have, I have no control of whether you go to hell or not. You're not going to stand in front of me. You're going to stand in front of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says these things are prohibitive in terms of inheriting eternal life. So here's what Paul thinks. And people say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate Paul. Well, we, we wouldn't know hardly anything about Jesus if it wasn't for Paul because Paul is the reason we have Luke, the book of Luke, and the, look, the book of Acts. And if you don't know this, the book of Luke and Acts is the largest section of content in the New Testament. So if you throw out Paul, you got to throw out the gospel of Luke. There's a lot of, which is what? The prodigal son? I mean, that's a great story. We, we lose a lot of these great truths that the apostle Paul brings to light because he knows who Jesus is. He says, I still think the Bible speaks out with one voice. This is the, this is the LGBTQ scholar with one voice against same-sex intercourse in both Testaments, in both the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament Bible. And listen to my, my friends who say, well, the Apostle Paul is only concerned with slave sex relationships, male prostitution, and pediatry. Listen to what he says. Romans 1 isn't talking about temple prostitution, pediatry, or slave sex in particular. This is the gay scholar. So he's not gay, but the affirming. So why does he say we should allow them in? Here's his reasoning. Theological abstractions aside. So let's take the word of God and let's slide it to the side. Here's what he said. Jews had to accept Gentiles. So what did they have to give up? The Sabbath. 
right? And there, there are prohibitions against giving up the Sabbath in the Hebrew Bible. This is a command forever. As long as you follow me, you worship on the Sabbath. That's why we have seven-day Adventists today. They think, what well, we still got to worship on Saturday. Shoot, we got people in our church that believe that. But the church moved worship from resting to celebrating resurrection, right? God rested on the seventh day. That's great. What, you know what's even greater? Jesus rose. So there's a transition there. Dietary restrictions. No, and, and, and why? Because you have to eat with each other. To truly be in relationship, you have to, you have to eat with each other. So they had to give up Sabbath, they had to give up, war, uh, they had to give up food, and then circumcision. Circumcision was a powerful, powerful sign that you are a Jew. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, arson, male nor female. Okay? And same, same thing in Greek. We, we have a word for man, anthropos. Same thing for, for woman. So like when you go to a feminine doctor, you go to a gynecologist, gune, woman in Greek. That's why. Um, I don't know why men, we don't, we don't get an arsenologist. You know, teach us how to set things on fire. Um, it'd probably be helpful. But um, uh, he says it speaks against in, in one voice. And so what he says is, well, they had to move these things over that God said would never be moved over, and we have to allow them in. Here's the problem. Here's the big problem with that position. Acts chapter 15. So the question is, can Gentiles be saved? Acts 15, they affirm. So here's what, here's what uh, Daniel Kirk says. He says, he has gay friends who have received the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. Just like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Here's the problem. In Acts 15, the council meets and they say, what, what do these Gentiles have to do to be a part of this? Clearly God is doing things. One of the things, and there's only a couple things. Don't strangle animals. Don't eat blood. Don't eat something you know has been sacrificed to a false god. And don't commit pornea. Daniel Kirk knows that. The problem is that the Bible tells us that pornea includes homosexual sex. And I would argue, even in heterosexual couples, anal sex is off limits. That's what I would say. It's not made for that. That's what I would say. I think that's a lot of heterosexual couples watching porn, talking to friends, not listening to God. And what you're saying is, I wonder if there's something better. God's, it, it's the devil, right? It's the devil. And oh, by the way, you know what I think the devil is saying? God is a lot more inclusive and loving and forgiving than you think. Did he say you're really going to die? In the name of love, in the name of inclusion, what we're actually doing is we're, we're expelling people out of heaven. I don't get to decide. I don't get to decide who goes to heaven. Jesus does. He said narrow is the road that leads to life, and there are few that find it. So why on earth would we believe that the world has found it? That the world has found it. And let me just say this. Even though the Apostle Paul is making the argument, Galatians um, 3.28, there still are different ethnicities in the church. We're different. We've got to love each other. There's still women. There's still men. Right? His point is we're all saved the same way. And it's a great point. Because if you have to be circumcised to be saved, what do you do with women? Right? Paul's like, and one. Because if circumcision is how you get saved, no women are ever saved. 
It's the greatest point of all time. But there's still men, there's still women. And we are to operate as a man and as a woman under the authority of God. How has he called me to live, to act? And the Apostle Paul has difficult things to challenge us as males and as females. God has challenging things for us as heterosexuals and homosexuals. And you need to know what the Word of God says. And so let me just finish up with this. I know I'm talking forever. There are specific words in the Greek. If, if the Apostle Paul is, is talking about um, boys here. So let me give you a couple of words. Just so that you know, in our Greek language. So in Luke 2.43, I want to run through these real quickly. As they were returning after, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Remember, this is when Mary and Joseph, like, you got one job. Don't lose the Son of God. They lost him. Like, I just can't imagine. Uh, but Paul thought that needed to be in there, which I think makes every parent feel better when you lost your kid temporarily, which I did. But the boy, in the Greek word, it is pais. So if the Apostle Paul wanted to talk about don't have sex with boys, he has a word. Okay? There's, 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 a, there's a man in Scripture, he wants his son to be healed, but he's, he's worried. And Jesus just says that you, that you need to, I want my boy to be healed. And he says, I believe, help me believe. The word there is paden. It's where we get our, our word pediatrics. Pedophile. It means child, boy. So we see this. Then there's a word for young man. The Apostle Paul is preaching, and sometimes I go too long. I love this text. He says, there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window, seeking into a deep sleep. As Paul kept on talking, right? Somebody like, come on, Pastor Matt, wrap it up. He was overcome with sleep, and he fell down to the third floor, and he was picked up dead. The word young man there. is Nianus. i got to spell it right. Nianus. So boy, boy, young man. We also have a word for slave. Come on in. Dulos. Dulos. I, Paul, your scripture says a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a slave. I'm a slave. So our choice is slave to sin or slave to Jesus. That's your choice. Right? One of the famous passages. Well, Jesus is my best friend. He says, you are my friends if you do what I say. That's a weird friendship relationship. He says, I, I have called you friends, but it's, it's a different kind of friendship. Because he's the son of God, and you're not. You're a child of God. You're a son, you're, 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 you know, you're a son of God, or you're a, a daughter of God, but you're not the son of God. You don't carry the title. He does. So we need to know this. These words are there. Jesus also uses the word arson, Mark 10, 6. But from the beginning, beginning God created the male and female. What's the male word? Arson. Arson. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, arson. It's, it's, it's constantly throughout Scripture. And one of the things we need to do is we need to translate Scripture with Scripture. 
All right, last question. Um, I was speaking to a non-Christian friend about your sermon, Are We Getting Sex Wrong?, and asked him what he thought about premarital sex. He answered, Did God marry Adam and Eve? Uh, yes, because God is both prophet, priest, and king. So in that role, he can operate as all three. And oh, by the way, so is Jesus. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And part of that, we need to understand that, that the word melech is often a word. I mean, who is God? He's king most high. He's, he's God most high. And he's also the one who speaks. He, the, the prophets speak, the Bible says, through the Holy Spirit. It's not their words. They're men carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke for God. So if God didn't marry Adam and Eve but allowed them to have sex, then why is premarital sex a sin? Here's why it's a sin. Because many of you lie to yourselves. And this is what we do all the time. We take our desires and we say, well, we, we decide. We decide. I just had to have this conversation with, I have two daughters that are at, at about marrying age. And I tell them all the time, I said, I hope you get this right. I didn't get it right. And here's the thing. Sex is, is to be reser reserved between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And, and you save it for that moment when you stand in front of all your friends, all your family, you stand before God, you stand before your church, and you say, this is my one. This is my one person. Look, I love all of you. Tammy plays a unique role in my life. She's the only person I am one with. She's the only person. And unfortunately, some of you say, well, we're, we're married in spirit. What you're going to do is you're going to become ones. Ones. The Apostle Paul, and I'm not saying that if you're in a, uh, a, a premarital sexual relationship that you're, that you're prostituting yourselves, but you kind of are. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, can Christ be united with the prostitute? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God, God, God will not bless that. God will not bless a sex act outside of the context of marriage. And then what's Paul's prescription if you're burning with lust? It's better to get married. It's better to get married. And there's your answer. Now you can go to the courthouse, but when your marriage falls apart, you ain't going to run to the courthouse. You're going to run to the church. I see it all the time. The law, American law, has no idea how to fix your relationship. But God does. Because God invented marriage. God invented Adam. God invented Eve. So if you're gay and you're watching this or, or you love someone that's gay, please don't run to them and say, watch this podcast. I just, I just want you to know what the text says. Uh, and to be fair, man, read this in the K King James Version. I don't know what they were thinking. Like the way they translated it is the most bizarre um, and all I can say is it was a different time culturally where they, they didn't know how to translate it. Here's the good news is it doesn't matter how it's been translated. What matters is what did Paul mean when he said it? What did Paul mean when he said men who sleep with men? What did that mean? And I think, and how I was trained in seminary was the simplest answer is usually the right answer. It's when we try to twist ourselves and make it say something that it doesn't. And I told you, one of the scholars who said he affirms LGBT community is saying that's not what the text says. There are people that are going to disagree. My job is to teach you the Word of God the best I can. And the best I can tell is the Apostle Paul consistently taught. Moses in Leviticus consistently taught that men who sleep with men, it's off limits. Okay, The Mosaic Law said they should be put to death. It's an abomination. Both of them. 
The Apostle Paul says, you, you shouldn't be put to death, but you are not going to inherit eternal life. That's what he says. You say, well, Jesus said nothing. Jesus affirmed in the beginning God created the male and female. And Jesus is harsh on divorce. Moses, the law, gave an excuse for divorce. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The only reason is adultery or something having to do with not being a faithful spouse. And we, we can talk about what that means. But what I would say to you is, I think it's pretty clear. This is what the text means. Um, I work with gay people at our church all the time. Some struggle with it. And that's one of the things that bothers me. Some of you say so self-righteously. Here's the thing that's been so bizarre in my lifetime. When I was a kid, the mean, nasty people were fundamentalist Baptist preachers. And now some of them are LGBTQ activists. It's, you're just on the other side. Espousing hate, espousing filth. Just, just, I mean, some of what you guys said to me, you would have made a fundamentalist Baptist preacher blush. It's just foul. It's gross. It's mean. Look, we can disagree on what the text means. We don't have to be hateful. We don't have to be mean. We don't have to be unloving. I'm just trying to tell you what I think it means. And it says men who sleep with men and women who sleep with women. And exchanged, we talked about last week, exchanged the natural way God wanted you to have sex. Like your penis and your vagina, those are powerful indicators of what God meant. They just are. And, 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 and so God has spoken in my anatomy and some of you say, well, what about hermaphrodites? It's interesting. Jesus talks about eunuchs in Matthew 19. He said, some of you were born that way. He doesn't have a word for hermaphrodite. So what he means is it doesn't function or there's confusion. Some of you, he says, have been made that way. So why were you made a eunuch? Well, if you took care of somebody's harem, they don't want you to have a penis or they don't want you to care about your penis. So they turn you into a eunuch. And he says, and some of you have become that way for the sake of the kingdom. What he says is some of you have chosen not to use this for the purpose of Jesus. That's why the Catholics would later mandate celibacy for priests. They believe it's a higher calling. I, I don't think that's the case. I just think for some of us, sex is just not, it's not, just not a good place to go. Like sex addicts, it's always interesting to me. Like you don't ask an alcoholic to drink occasionally. But with sex addicts, we try to get them to a healthy place where they can operate with sex. It, it, it's a really challenging thing. So um, Jesus actually speaks to it, and he says that in the beginning God made them male and female, and it was God's idea. So, but here's the good news if you're single. Not only does Paul invent this idea of consent, he also invents liberation. In a, a woman, a woman 2,000 years ago, you know, so there's this discussion about the resurrection. So this woman is married seven times. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She's property. Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't get it. In the next life, you will ne neither be male or female, or you will ne neither be married nor unmarried. My wife's like, oh, dude, for thousands of years, do you know how brutal it is to be into a woman? So, so imagine, imagine this gospel. Not only are you married to this pig in life, but eternal life, you're his property again. Jesus is like, no, no. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and he speaks to a Greco-Roman culture where the only purpose of a woman is to get married and have children. And he says, I think it is better that you remain unmarried as I am. He's the first sexual revolution. He's the first revolution. He says, you're not property. Your purpose isn't to be a mom. Your purpose isn't to have babies. Your purpose is to love Jesus. And if, and if, if you can't, if you can't do that, 
then get married because it's better to be married than to burn with lust and have sex outside the context of marriage. It's just better. I was just talking with my son. My son's getting ready to college, and we were spending some time together yesterday. I said, I said, son, if you find yourself in love with a girl and you can't control yourself, I said, come talk to me. Let's do this right. Because there's a way that God blesses, and there's a, there's a way that he doesn't. And I said, as your dad, I got it wrong, and I want you to get it right. And that's all I want for you guys. No judgment. I'm not arrogant. I, I, I'm just trying to teach you how to follow Jesus, and I've struggled with this. But I'm telling you, the text, the text hasn't changed. The same reason people wanted it to say you could keep slaves is the same reason we, we, we wanted to say something else. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're the same. Owning somebody and having consensual sex in a gay relationship, it's not the same. I'm just saying, culturally, they excuse their behavior because it's what they wanted. And that's what we're doing today. Culturally, we're excusing our behavior because of what we wanted. So much of the way we've treated women for 2,000 years has nothing to do with the text. It has to do with how Roman men viewed women. It has to do with how English men viewed women. It has to do with how American men viewed women. It has very little to do with how Jesus and Paul viewed women. It's not to say that he doesn't think there's functions, but he always proclaims value. Value. Right? And think about it, ladies. God didn't need a man when he made Jesus, but he did need a woman. Something very powerful. There's something special about your role. We don't know where Joseph is when Jesus dies, but Mary's there to the very end. And his last words are about his mom. John, take care of her. Right? It's beautiful. There's beautiful things that God's called us to do and to function as men and women. And, um, man, that's a whole nother talk, but... Um, you know, if you're a woman, you're, you're not a man. And if you're a man, you're not a woman. And, and, and this gender confusion, I mean, part of the reason we're trying to obliterate the differences, I believe, is because we're trying to obliterate God. It has nothing to do with biology or reason. Man, if you have, if you have two kids and one's a boy, one's a girl, man, they come out different. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. And we didn't train them to be any different. They're just different. And so some of that's cultural. Some of it's biological. In the beginning, there's, there's no culture when Adam and Eve are, are, are created. They have to create culture, but God creates them biologically different for a reason and for a purpose. And no matter what you do in life, you will always be better served if you say, God knows more than I do and I'm going to trust him. So love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope this helped. Next debrief will be more normal. And, um, you know, just know if you present this information to someone who doesn't want to believe, it, it doesn't help. The Holy Spirit has to convict. The Holy Spirit has to show up before my words do. If the Holy Spirit is not present, is not, is not moving, no, nobody's getting saved. No, nobody's awakening. Nobody's repenting. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see God. And um, so just pray for the people that you love, that the Holy Spirit would impact their lives and touch them. And, and they would repent just like you and I need to and come to Jesus and... Um, He's just, he's just beautiful, he's wonderful, he's amazing, and um, he's incredible. So I love you guys. God bless.